following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Romans chapter 9, verse uh, 6 says, but it is, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Right? Uh, the context here is, uh, Paul has talked in the first five verses about the failure of Israel to receive the gospel. And he says, in spite of the fact that God has given for 2,000 years this great heritage that pointed to Christ, that pointed in every way to the gospel coming and being fulfilled and accomplished and completed in Christ. When it came... Oh, and this is just throwing me off again. <laughs> Check, one, two, three. I'll do the countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Is it okay out there? Okay, because it really just does weird things to me up here when it does that. Sorry. So, I have no idea where I was. Um, Israel, yeah, Israel uh, failed to receive the gospel, failed to take in Uh, God's word and God's truth, and to accept it in spite of all that they had been given that pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of of God's grand climax in history. And so the question is, Paul brings up in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, has somehow, has the word of God failed? Right? Has it failed? And it's interesting, the word that's used there for failed really has the idea of falling down. Right? So the picture is really this, this grand rocket launch, Right? It's like the Old Testament built this huge rocket and it's sitting on the rocket stand and God says, or Paul says, here's this great promise and hope of future, uh, great things that God is going to do. But it is it as if the rocket barely got off the, the pad in the New Testament and because Israel didn't see it, it fell down to the ground and crashed and burned. Right? That's kind of what he's saying here. And it's what he wrestles with in these three chapters of chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. Has God's promise, has his word to Israel failed in some way? Because Israel, uh, whom it was originally made to, did not receive it. Now for us this might seem, you know, we might think to ourselves, well, I'm not Israel, I'm not a Jew, I don't really care, right? It doesn't really affect me. But the, the truth is it affects every single one of us. Because the question really is, does God keep his promises, right? If he didn't keep his promise to Israel, then how do you know God's going to keep his promise to you? Right? If God says, Israel, I will save you. Uh, my, my plan will culminate with you. But, you know, it didn't work out so well, so I'm moving on to plan B because, well, it just didn't work out. Right? At what point does God say that to you? So, well, you know, Tim, your, your life is not at all what I thought it would be. I'm giving up on you and I'm moving on to something else. Right? And Paul says, is it possible, is it conceivable that God's word could fall down, could fail, could crash and burn without accomplishing what he said it would. And the word here that he's talking about is not the word of God in general, but specifically the word of promise given to Israel in the Old Testament, because that's the context here, right? Did all that God promised Israel fall short and fail because Israel has not received the gospel? Well, that's the question, and that's what Paul wants wants to answer and it is important for us. Uh, and then through this, it teaches us some great things about who God is and what he's about. So let's read the rest of the passage. He says, but it isn't, and we're only going to read down through verse 13. Uh, for sake of not killing you off, I'll take it in small pieces. So 6 through 13 says this. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. But, the scripture says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the, scripture, for this is what the promise says. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, 
The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, um, you read through this, and I know for a lot of us, we look at this, and we read, especially the final words, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and you know, we just kind of get thrown into a tailspin of what in the world is this about? Uh, Well, let's unpack this a little bit and see how uh, Paul answers this question, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God's promise failed? And basically his argument boils down to this. He says that God's promise is firm or unmoving. God's promise is certain based on two principles that he highlights in this passage. And the first principle is this. He says God's promise stands firm. It remains. It's reliable. It's unstoppable. Because it depends on the action of God, not of people. Right? So let's look at that. And it's the first story about... Uh, Abraham's offspring, Ishmael and Isaac. And uh, let me read this part again. He says, It is not as though the word of God failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so first off, he says, here's the deal. Uh, there's two pictures of what Israel is. First, Israel as a nation, which is a political entity. But outside of, or inside of that large group is a smaller group uh, of the spiritual Israel. So he says, not all Israel, the nation, are Israel as in the children or chosen or like people of God. Um, and he uses to illustrate this point uh, the simple illustration of Abraham's children. And of course, uh, the Israelites, the Jews, identified themselves as being descendants of Abraham. And that is, in, in essence, what characterized them as being Israelites, right? They all shared that common ancestry. So if you were to ask, why are you an Israelite? It would say, well, I'm descended from Abraham. If you're not descended of Abraham, you don't get to belong to this club, right? If you are, you're automatically signed up. And the Israelites had this idea or conception that um, by belonging to uh, the family, by being a descendant of Abraham, you're automatically in, right? You're automatically saved, so to speak, using our Christian terminology, right? You're automatically the children and people of God. But Paul, Paul says, look, that's not even true in the Old Testament. It's not even true in Genesis. And he says, think about this, okay? We're all of Abraham's children Israelites, right? He says, well, of course not. And no, no, no Jew would, in fact, Jews would be quite adamant about this, right? That the Ishmaelites were, were not Jews, right? Only the descendants of Isaac. So he uses this argument. He says, he says, uh, not all of the children of Abraham, uh, because they are his offspring, are, are, are Israel. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right? So he says it's more than just blood relationship. Okay, God's salvation to Israel, God's promise to Israel, it's not just about blood or family ties. Um, it's more than that. And he uses this example, Ishmael and, and Isaac. Uh, only Isaac was the, was the child of promise. Uh, And so what Paul's saying here, real clear, is that God's promises are true, but we got to understand the details of God's promise, right? God's promises are absolutely invincible and changing, but you got to be clear about what it is God has promised. And God never promised that all of Abraham's descendants would be Israel, would be his children. Uh, From the very beginning, God divided out uh, those who were children of promise versus generic children. Um, and and uh, so that, that's the picture. Simple, easy, right? Isaac alone was the child of promise, and that's what he says. He says only this child was the child of God's specific promise. And he clarifies it in verse 9 by saying this, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now, uh, Paul assumes that they understand the bigger context of the story. And we know the story, right? Uh, Sarah was Abraham's first wife, first love. Uh, they had been married for a very long time. We don't know. But at this point in the story, Sarah was about 90 years old, and Abraham was about 100 years old. Uh, she had been barren, unable to have children her whole life. Her whole life, right? And God comes along and repeatedly makes this promise to Abraham. You're going to have a, you're going to have a son. 
I'm going to bless. I'm going to have a covenant relationship. I'm going to make promises through this son. But the son is going to come specifically through Sarah. Right? Well, years go by. Actually, about 25 years go by. And Sarah does not have a child. And not only does she not have a child, but she gets well beyond the age where it would be reasonable to expect that she ever would have a child. She's 90 years old, right? And in fact, when uh, the context of this story, when the angel says, Sarah's going to have, I'm going to come back next year, and and Sarah's going to have a a son, it's so ridiculous that Sarah does what? She laughs, right? She laughs. It is a joke, right? It's just a joke. This is ridiculous, right? But God says, my promise is this. Sarah will have a son, and that child will be the child of promise. Now, of course, back, back up a little bit. Abraham and Sarah knew this promise was coming, and uh, Sarah wasn't having babies, uh, but they knew God had made the promise. So what do, what do Sarah and Abraham con- conspire together to do? Right? Well, God's made this promise. Obviously, I can't fulfill the promise, Sarah says. So I'll tell you what, Abraham, you take my servant Hagar and you make babies with her, right? And um, Abraham's like, sure, sounds like a good plan to me. So he goes and he makes a baby with Hagar, Ishmael, right? Well, what I love about this story, what I think Paul is illustrating by this example, he gives us a little piece of it, but he wants us to see the whole story, right? I think what he's saying is this. God's promise is fulfilled... Uh, First of all, because God is very clear and specific about what his promise is. And in this case, his promise was specifically that Sarah would have a child. But that was impossible. It was impossible, right? Humanly speaking, it wasn't going to happen. Abraham and Sarah thought, it's okay, no problem, you know. We can come up with alternative plans. There's a man-made, man-accomplished way to do this. And God says, no, I reject that plan. I'm going to have nothing to do with that plan because when I make a promise, no matter how impossible it is, it is up to me to accomplish accomplish the promise by my own doing. Right? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, to you it is impossible. But that's what makes my promise unique and special. And so the principle that comes out of this is simply this, that God, God accomplishes his own promises by his own doing. God would only accept the child that came about by what he did, by his direct intervention and in doing in the lives of Sarah and Abraham. Right? It wasn't up to them to say, well, God's promises, so it's up, up to me to work out how it gets done. God says, no, that's not acceptable. I will not bless, I will not pass on the promise to your solution to the problem, to your effort to accomplish my promise. I will only do it as I accomplish and do the work through my own means, no matter how impossible it seems to you. So how does this apply to Israel? Well, it's simply this. Uh, Paul is saying here, look, you don't have to worry about God's promise to, to Israel. Because throughout history, God never promised that he would save, that he would make all Israel his children, right? Uh, It's true that he would make all Israel a nation, but there would always be a select remnant that God would call out to be the true Israel, right? The Israel in the truest sense, his children. And God says, look, the means for that, the means for fulfilling that promise does not depend on Israel, it depends on God. And see, what people were, were, were worried about here is, look, Israel has rejected Jesus. There's a problem. And Paul says, no, there's no problem because it's not up to them. Right? God's saving work of Israel is something that God will do in his own time by his own power and strength. It's not up to Israel. Right? Same thing is true for us. How did you get saved? Right? How did God's salvation come to you? Did God promise he would save you and then say, okay, I promise to save you. Now I want you to go out and find salvation and make it happen in your life. Is that how it happened for you? It's not how it happened for me, right? I was not looking for salvation. I was not looking for God. Uh, I was quite happy with my life the way it was, right? 
God hunted me down and found me. Uh, and most significantly, there's nothing I did to produce in my own life God's grace and forgiveness. Right? It came about supremely through the sacrifice of, and, and blood of Jesus. God made it possible. God ap- accomplished for us His salvation by His own doing. And He will fulfill His promises to us by His own active hand at work in our life, right? So Paul says, first, first thing, first, you don't have to worry about Israel because when God wants to save a people out of Israel, He will accomplish it by His own doing. It's not up to Israel, right? It's not up to Israel. Now, of course, we can't get to the rest of the story. We, we need to look at all three chapters at one time. We can't. Uh, he has not given up on Israel, and his purpose and his promise to Israel is not done yet. And he's going to talk about that later. But for now, we need to understand that he's saying, when it's time and when God seeks to do a work in Israel, it will happen. Because it depends on God, not man. Um, pretty simple. Second thing. He, he goes on with another illustration. And second, So the first principle is that we can count on God's promises because in the end, God's the one who does it, not, not us. Right? Second principle, also quite simple, is this. Uh, God's promises are certain and true because they depend on God's choice, not ours. Okay? They depend on God's choice, God's election, not ours. Uh, and he, he makes this point this way. He says in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Let's unpack this one. Also, not that complicated. Um, even though a lot of it we may not like. Okay? It's quite simple. Uh, he says, it boils down to this. Next generation also has two sons, Jacob and Esau. All right. Now, these two sons are different than Ishmael and Isaac. And the Jews would say this. They, they would say, well, you know, Ishmael, you know, Hagar wasn't really his wife. She was kind of an add-on wife. You know, of course God wouldn't, wouldn't choose Ishmael, right? So Paul anticipates that argument. He goes ahead of generations. Okay, let's take Jacob and Esau, right? Same mom, same dad. And not only that, but the text here in the Greek makes it very clear, same conception, right? Because that's how united these two guys are, okay? It came down to the same act of sex that produced them, okay? They are connected, right? You can't argue in any way that one had an advantage over the other. They're twins, right? They're twins, right? They both have equal rights, humanly speaking, to the inheritance of the father, they both share, humanly speaking, the same exact birthright, right? But what about them? He says, he says, you know, God clearly says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Uh, now commentators, you know, wrestle with this one, you know, how can God really hate? Probably the, the, the language here is really referring to God's loving in that he accepted Jacob, and his hating is in the context, context of rejecting Esau. Right? I, I chose one. I didn't choose the other. Now we know if we go back in Genesis, we look at the story, God didn't hate Esau. In fact, he promised to bless Esau. And he made, he made promises that Esau would in fact become a great nation himself, that he would have many descendants. But they were promises separate from the promise of being God's chosen people and in covenant relationship with him. Okay? So it's not that God hated Esau. He blessed him. Right? But in terms of his choosing... He chose one son, and he did not choose the other, right? Well, what is all that about? Um, well, he says, uh, you know, Paul's argument here is simply this. The promise doesn't pass on automatically, even in a case where they're twins, right? God never guaranteed that just because Isaac had two, two boys, that the promise would pass on automatically. In other words... God was not obligated to bless both of them simply because they were offspring of Isaac. 
Okay, his promise wasn't about that. Right? His promise was based on something much different. And he goes on a little further and he explains, he says, you know, they were conceived by the same parents, uh, conceived at the same time. But even before they were born, before they had done either good or bad, God chose one. Uh, In other words, what was the basis of God's choice of of Esau or Jacob? What was he weighed them out? How did God choose one over the other? Well, we want it to be like this. We want it to be, well, obviously, Jacob was the better choice because he was the better person, right? That's how we would choose because he deserved it more, right? Um, But... Paul's very clear that God's choice was made before either one of them had done anything. Okay, they were still in the womb. Uh, they hadn't acted out anything yet. He said, he said, it's not because of anything good or evil, not because of any of their own works. Right? In fact, when you look ahead in the story, which one was really the better brother? Well, that's a tough question. Because <laughs> neither one of them were that great. But honestly, if I had to pick one, I think I'd go with Esau. You know, Jacob was was a deceiver. I mean, his name meant heel grabber, trickster. He was a great scam artist, right? And uh, God pursued him for many decades, actually. And he was not a nice person. He was not a man of exemplary faith. He was not a man of great moral character. He was kind of a loser, right? Esau, on the other hand, stayed at home, was a reliable elder son, was a good hunter, took care of his father, he, he was really the more responsible of the two, and certainly the more honest, right? God does not choose based on their character. He does not choose based on anything that they've done, not on anything about them. His choice is free and independent of them, right? He chooses the younger. In fact, he, he chooses what nobody else would. Okay? Isaac certainly would have chosen the older son. Culture and society would have said, choose the older son. Uh, common sense would choose would say, choose the strong, tough hunter guy who's going to, you know, go out and be a conqueror. Not the weasley, deceitful, trickster, little, you know, corrupt guy. Right? Don't choose him. But God chooses contrary to human reasoning. He chooses Jacob. Um... So what's the point of all this? Well, he, and Paul leaves nothing to, to imagination here. He says exactly why it's this way, why it must be this way. And his, his answer is simply this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, good or bad, uh, not because of works, but because of him who calls, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. All right, through their choice, through his call. Uh, that could be translated really better this way. In order that the purpose of God might stand. And the word there for remain or abide really has the idea of standing. Right? And when you compare with the, the word at the beginning in verse 6 where he says that the word would not fall down, he says, has the word of God fallen down? He says, no, so that the word of God might stand firm. Right? So that it would be unstoppable and certain. Right, uh, in order that the purpose of God might stand continually, unshaken and unstoppable, through what? God's free choice. Right? Through God's free choice. Because that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying the only way that God's promise can be guaranteed certain, the only way God's promise could be unstoppable and shakable, is if it depends on God's choice, not man's choice. Uh, Jacob did not choose God. Esau did not choose God. God chose Jacob. Right? And what Paul is saying here is that God's word does not fail because it depends on God's free, independent choice apart from anything we do or don't do. Right? Anything we do or don't do. Uh, again, to apply this to our own life, how, how is it you are a child of God? Uh, did you really choose God or did God choose you? Well, of course, we all would like to feel, and we all have the experience, all of us, right? If we're true believers in Christ, we all have the experience that there came a point in life 
when before us sat two paths, one leading to hell, one leading to heaven, one leading to our own way of, of sinfulness and pursuing our own, our own path, and another way following God and walking in obedience to Him. And at the crossroads of that path stands the cross of Christ, right? And we all, we all experienced this, that there came a point where we came to the cross and we chose Christ, right? We chose the way of faith. And that's all our experience, right? So there is a sense in which very much we chose, we acted out of our own will to receive the good news, to believe it and to follow it, right? Uh, and that's our experience. But the, the greater question is, who chose first, Right? And, and, and the real question is this. If it depended solely on your choice, would you be comfortable with that? Okay. Now, for us who have already made the choice, we go, yeah, I would. But let's put it in this context. What if we're talking about your children right, or your grandchildren? Would you really want the choice to be left totally up to them? Right? Or would you want God choosing first? I'm telling you, I want God choosing first. Because he is reliable. My children, not so reliable. Me, even less. My grandchildren, panic mode. It's panic mode, right? Because they're being raised by my children. <laughs> right? I don't, wanna, I don't even want to leave it there, see? Okay. God's, God's purpose can only be unstoppable can only be guaranteed firm and steadfast if it does not depend on me. So putting it back in the context of Israel, Paul says, has the word of God failed because Israel has not chosen to follow Christ? Well, Paul says, it's not the the issue, it's not even the question. The question is, has God, who out of Israel has God chosen? For those, you can be guaranteed certain God will accomplish His purpose for them. They will be saved. Right? Because it depends not on our choice, but God's. Right? Um, it's up to Him, not us. Right? Now, uh, that's what Paul teaches here, and it really is quite simple and direct and clear. Okay? There's not, uh, it's not confusing. And in fact, when you read through all the commentaries, all the commentators will say the same thing. They'll say, well, this is what Paul's saying. Right? Uh, there's, not, there's not debate among commentators on the, the plain and simple meaning of what Paul says here. And you go, well, yeah, but what about all this huge debate? Well, there is a debate, but the ba- debate is not about what, this, what Paul says here. Okay? The debate comes in the next step, where the commentators then try to take what Paul says and do something with it, right? And mostly what we try to do with it uh, in the Western world is we try to uh, unexplain everything that Paul just said, right? And the reason is we don't like it, right? There's something about this truth that we just don't like, right? And I want to take just a few minutes at the end not to talk about so much about what Paul says, but to talk about why it is this is such a difficult truth for us, right? Um, in fact, it's interesting, I, re- I read through, I don't know how many commentaries this week, they all explain the passage, right? And they get to explaining it, and they all say the exact same thing. They, they say exactly what I just told you just now. But then they go off into never-never land, trying to confuse it with all these questions that are not in the Bible, right? That are not part of what Paul says here. Uh, and the effort in, in, in most of them is to, is to say, well, you know, I know that's what Paul said, but it's not really what he meant, Really what he meant was, and they use lots of big words and string along all kinds of theological concepts and phrases uh, to leave you cloudy and numb. So then you go, well, I don't even know what they're talking about. And that's their goal, right? Because if you don't know what they're talking about, you can't make logical conclusions from it, right? Well, let's talk about why we do that. Why is it for us this is such a difficult concept? Um, uh, and I titled this Free and Fair Elections, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, first of all, we all have cultural biases, right? And every culture, and it doesn't matter what culture you're from, but if you're from a West, especially from a Western culture, your culture has certain biases about truth. And the good news is that some of our biases 
actually correspond to biblical truth, right? Some of them line up in favorable ways with what the Bible teaches. So if you're a Westerner, for example, you will, you will love this idea that God is a God of love, right? Because of the 60s <laughs> and flower children, right? And so we, we like that. We like that about God's character, that God is love. And we want to talk about and highlight those truths because they correspond with our culture, right? We're a loving culture. Now, if you grow up in Afghanistan, love is seen as weakness, right? And if you start talking about being God as love, you're talking about God being some kind of pansy and weakling, right? And so that doesn't resonate with their culture. But for us, most of us Western culture, it does, right? Uh, But every culture also has biases that oppose biblical truth. Every culture, every culture. And this would be one of those. This would be one of those things that guaranteed butts up against Western culture in ways that we don't like. And uh, as we study through Scripture, we have options. And when we come across passages like this that tell us certain things about God's character that we don't like, we have two options. One, we can decide that God's not really that way. Right? We can decide, God must conform to my cultural bias. And that's normally, sadly, what we often do. And it's what the church is doing large-scale in the West. We want to remake God so that he would be a good American. God forbid. Right? Heaven forbid. Right? That's exactly what we do because we don't like the implications of a God who doesn't fit our mold. Right? The other thing we could do is instead we can say, well, no, God is what he is, and I'm not going to change him. He is who he is whether I like it or not. But I'm going to let God's character challenge my culture, challenge my assumptions and beliefs about truth and about uh, reality. Uh, so where does this come from? Um, the, these notions are, are hard, are, are, are struggle. Well, it could be a lot of things, and it may be different for different ones of us, but um, it could be that one of, the, one of the issues with why we don't like this is our, is our tendency to take things to, to great extremes. And we see this, uh, you know, the kind of the Calvinist versus Arminian view taken to incredible extremes, uh, which Paul doesn't do, by the way. Okay, it's, it's, our own, it's our own niche to take a truth and, and drive it as far in the opposite direction from that truth as we can, right? The Bible holds things in, in much more balance. As we go through this, we'll see some of that, but... Paul's issue here is not balance, okay? Because that's not his point. He's trying to show why God's word does not fail. So he's not balancing his argument. He's giving an argument to answer that question, right? But one of the issues we have is that things get taken oftentimes way out of balance. Um, And it is a hard, honestly, a hard doctrine to balance out, right? Uh, Another issue for us that makes it difficult is, is our modern logic and reason wants to take things to its logical end, right? We love going to its logical conclusion. And uh, if you want to, you, you know, drive yourself crazy, you start running through this, through your Western uh, logic, reasonable ab- approach about, well, if God chose, then how could I choose? Or if I choose, how could God choose? And if God chose, blah, 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 and you'll drive yourself crazy, right? Uh, and, and a lot of people do that. And so some people say, I don't want to get in the middle of that, so I'm just going to stay away from that logical path that that goes down. Uh, that may be part of the problem. Um, and the answer to that is that uh, God's reason and logic is far beyond ours. Right? Our logic cannot explain God. And if you want to explain God through human reason, you deserve to be crazy. Okay? But I think the real issue is this, for most of us. The real reason this rubs us the wrong way is because of our democratic worldview. Uh, we, for the most part, are people who come from democratic countries where democracy is seen as the savior of the world, right? As the chief end of man and the highest form of whateverness, right? And we, we're very unaware of how democracy, which is a good thing, but how it has pervaded our thinking in terms of what's just and right and fair, right? Um, what does it mean to be fair? And one of the things that comes down to when we look at this is, is most people will say, if God chooses, 
If God chose me and he did not, if God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau, that is what? That is not fair, right? That's not fair. Uh, that is democratic thinking, okay? That's a, a sign of our Western democratic worldview that has nothing to do with Scripture or the Bible. Now, let me, let me illustrate that quickly. So just try to hang with me. Uh, for us, fair means this. Uh, in the Western world, fair means all people have the right to equal access and opportunity to know and follow God, right? We are equal, right? And... and uh, that's what democracy is. We are equal, we're created equal before God, and we all have equal rights and access. That is fair. And so for God to not give equal opportunity to Jacob and Esau, that is unfair. See, if God was being fair, according to our view of things, God should have gone to them and held the council, had posters, had an election, you know, had media campaign, and said, now guys, I'm giving you equal chance to pick. Do you want me or not? Right? We call that fair. And that comes very much out of our Western worldview. Right? Well, where does this Western worldview come from? Where do these ideas of fairness and equality and, and justice, where does it come from? Anybody know? It comes from Enlightenment thinking. Okay? Uh, up until the 16th, 17th century... The, most of the world was, was ruled by kings, right? And kings got their authority or power from where? From God, okay? And there was this idea that God gave this stewardship to kings to rule God's people according to God's purpose, right? But along came the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment thinkers decided this. Uh, this is Enlightenment. Western philosophical tradition, Enlightenment is seen as a phase in cultural history marked by philosophical methods which employ knowledge and reason. Okay, got it. we got to think this through. Generally accompanied by the rejection of faith in institutional religion. Okay, so first step, Enlightenment thinking says, man is smart enough to figure this out on his own. He doesn't need God's help. Right, so first step in Enlightenment thinking is, I can be the solution to the problem, not God. So we don't need him. Uh, second one, this comes from uh, um, one of the Enlightenment philosophers. He says, Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incured tutelage or bondage or tutorship, right? He's, under, he's a student of somebody else. Tutelage is the incapacity to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. So they're saying, look, the old way, you're, you're smart, but you didn't know you were smart, and you stupidly let other people teach you. What were you thinking? Right? Enlightenment thing is you don't need another teacher. You're smart enough on your own. You can figure this out on your own. Right? You don't need guidance. Such tutelage is self-imposed if, it ca- if its cause is not lack of intelligence, but rather a lack of determination and courage to use one's intelligence without being guided by another. Okay, that thinking uh, shaped the Western world. It said, you can figure this out and you don't need God's help. Right? You're smart. You're bright young lads. Right? Don't let God or anybody else tell you how to think. Right? Last piece of the puzzle um, from, from our good friend Frederick Nietzsche says this, The man who wants to gain wisdom profits greatly from having thought for a time that man is basically evil and degenerate, right? But this idea is wrong. Like its opposite, but for whole periods of time, it was predominant, and its roots have sunk deep into us and into our world. To understand ourselves, we must understand it, but to climb higher, we must climb over and beyond it. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, somebody in the past told you that there is such a thing as sin and right and wrong and moral behavior. And the church has used this as a tool to oppress you. And the church has said, this is right and this is wrong, and if you're a good person, you'll do this and you won't do that. But he's saying, you know, it's, it's okay to understand that as part of our history, but we've got to do what? We've got to overcome that thinking. We've got to rise above it and see that we are good. And we can do good things. If only we will be freed from the bondage of church and religious institutions. Right? That is enlightenment thinking. Well, what did that thinking produce in us? 
Well, it said man is, uh, man is God, and man can find truth uh, without God's help. Right? Man is good, uh, and we are free to decide our own purpose and meaning in life. Okay? God's purpose for the world no, matter, no longer matters or counts. What counts is your free, independent pursuit of your own happiness, uh, your own knowledge, your own truth, right? So what that produces societies, whole worlds, whole countries, where the chief end of man is, is our, the pursuit of our own selfish rights, right? Now, we don't call it selfish rights. We call it things like human rights, okay? They're not selfish. They're human, okay? And the highest call of, of the Western world that we're trying to impose on the rest of the world is human rights, right? Right now, if, you're, if you do much with missions and you have to raise funds, if you want to raise a lot of money, all you have to do is use the word anti-trafficking, okay? It's a money magnet because everybody loves to hear about anti-trafficking. I'm doing anti-trafficking and I'm fighting against human rights violations, right? Well, people love that, right? The democratic world loves that. Now, I'm not saying God does not also care about human rights, right? Uh, but God's care and concern for human rights is much different than this, right? This is at a whole other level. And this is, uh, is, is not just that some people are abused and oppressed by others. It means this. All people are equal, and all people have equal right to the same opportunities and choices, Right? People have human rights, the right to pursue their own freedom without being interfered with by churches or governments or other people. Okay? And that's what drives us. And that's what defines for us what is fair and just. Right? It's fair and just if it's uh, not interfering with human rights. If it's not interfering with people's right to choose their own path and their own way. Um, now, this is how far it goes, okay? Uh, in 1997, there was an interparliamentary council, right, looking at human rights, looking at democracy, and they drafted a constitution defining really what democracy was, and they boiled it down that democracy is primarily about um, free and fair elections, okay? But it's a bit more than that, and they word it this way. They say... Um, uh, in, in this charter, they reaffirm the significance of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which establishes, and get this, okay, listen carefully to these words, establishes that the authority to govern shall be based on the will of the people as expressed in periodic and genuine elections. Okay, that's what democracy is. That's what we all believe. That's what the world right now is fighting for in every single country of the world, right? Free and fair elections. In any state, the authority of the government can only derive from the will of the people as expressed in genuine free and fair elections held at regular intervals. Okay. The right, get this, the right to rule, the right for governance comes from where? The will of the people. And the will of the people is expressed through free and fair elections. Now, now, I'm not saying this is bad politically. Okay, I'm not against democracy politically. In fact, it's actually quite brilliant. You take millions of, of very self-consumed, self-absorbed, selfish people, and you throw them all together, and you say, go at it as selfishly as you can, and you just crash into each other, right? And so your selfishness runs up against everybody else's selfishness, so you find you can't actually be as selfish as you want to be. Because it interferes with their selfishness. And we call it human rights. Okay? It's, it's brilliant. Right? It's brilliant. And it kind of works, right? Because in my selfish pursuit, I'm just not going to let you get very far in your selfish pursuit. Okay? We're going to keep each other in check. And somehow it works, right? To a point. But is it really uh, biblical, right? Does this thinking come from Scripture? Does this thinking reflect somehow the character and nature of God? Is this the kind of thinking that should drive and dominate how Christians define justice and fairness? I don't think so, right? I don't think so. And I think we have been blinded to our own culture, right, that this is somehow true because we believe it, 
right? And that God must be as democratic as I am, right? Well, he's not, right? He's not. Um, Authority derives from the will of the people, right? Is that where authority derives from? Is that what Scripture would teach? That sinful, fallen, broken people have been given by their own choice and self authority to rule. Well, Scripture obviously teaches something quite different. Scripture teaches God's divine right to rule because He created everything, right? Because He is Creator. Because He can pull the plug anytime He wants. It's His creation. It is His world. He is God, and He has the right to rule it, right? The right to govern does not come from us. It comes from God. Uh, It's interesting to see how far this goes. Um, In the same document, uh, it's actually a series of documents talking about right to free and fair elections, which, by the way, just for fun, in Egypt, when they had their elections a year or so ago, because their English wasn't so good, the newscasters were broadcasting proudly that they were Egypt's first free, unfair elections. (laughs) Free and fair elections. Okay, if you say it fast enough, it almost sounds like free and fair. Right? Free and fair elections. Um, in 1997, when they first started drafting these documents, uh, they, they said this, that, that every state, every country, had the right to self-determination and, determine, and to determine freely their political status. Okay, so in 1997, 15 years ago is all, when they were debating this, they said, okay, well, what happens if the will of the people is to elect a communist government, right? Or a dictatorship? Or what if they willingly choose a monarchy, right? Is that okay? In 1997, they said, yes, that is okay. Every country should be given the right of self-determination to freely determine their own political status. But within four years, by 2001, all that language was removed, Right? All of it was removed. And they started saying this. Uh, every, every, because of human rights, every country has the right to elect, through free and fair elections, a government that expresses the will of the people. And the will of the people can never be a monarchy, a dictatorship. Okay, right? So see, in four years, just 15 years ago, so this is how thinking has been shaping our culture and our world that now not only uh, is the freedom to choose a human right, but the freedom to choose the way I want you to choose is now the mandate that governs our thinking, right? So here's the deal. Is God given permission or freedom to govern and rule and be God? Absolutely not, right? Because he does not represent the will of the people. That is unfair and unjust, the world says. So we read Romans chapter 9, right? And we read these words that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I chose Jacob. I did not choose Esau. And I have the right to do that. And everything in this screams, that's not fair. Well, we've got to start asking ourselves, where does that come from? Right? I'll tell you, it comes from are cultural values that are opposed to biblical truth. Now, there's a balance to this, and as we go through this, we want to look at the balance. We want to keep the scriptural truth. Um, We don't want to take it to extremes, right? The truth is, we do make choices. God holds us accountable for whether or not we accept him by faith or not. But the truth is, we need to let this truth challenge our cultural ideas, right? Because the reality is, uh, we don't really want God to be God. Not on those terms. And I've heard Christians say this. I've heard Christians say to me, well, if God is like that, then I don't want a God like that. I take ten steps back, waiting for the lightning to come. Right? Uh, is that really what you want to say to God? God, if you're like that, I don't want you. Um, I don't want to say that, right? I want to say, God, if that is how you are, I want to know the truth, right? 
And I want the way you are to be challenging my false ideas about what is fair and what is right and the way the world works. Now, we have to end there because, you know, the will of the people must rule. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, Preview next week, uh, Paul talks a little bit about not only God's right to rule, but his character in ruling. God is not arbitrary. There are things about God that we can trust and rely on in his character um, that give us hope, right? That balance out the equation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are absolutely what you are, that you are in many ways indescribable and incomprehensible that we think we're so smart and we've been convinced by human philosophy that we are logical and knowledgeable and we can figure things out, that we can answer every question and solve every problem, and that we can explain you. But, Father, it is pride and foolishness to think that. You are beyond our descriptions. You are beyond figuring out, and your ways are not our ways. They are so far above and beyond. So, Lord, help us to be very careful as we encounter things in Scripture that challenge us, that we're not comfortable with. Um, Lord, that we, uh, we're very careful to examine our own faulty thinking and ideas behind these, these uncomfortable feelings that leave us uh, troubled. And Lord, we thank you that, uh, that your promises are certain. And what we can take away from this is that you are big enough to accomplish all your purposes in our lives. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.